you're listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we sit down for an exclusive interview with Sonia Nasri Cole, who's an Afghan-American author, filmmaker, humanitarian, and activist. We get a chance to hear Sonia laugh and cry as she reflects upon the transformational experiences that put her on a path to touch so many lives through her activism and creative works. Next, we explore what she loves about storytelling and get a glimpse into the most fascinating inner workings of the mind of a natural-born storyteller. Interestingly enough, both Sonia and I are Afghan and we're both the eldest children in our families, so we get a chance to reflect upon the pressures uh, of how to be perfect and then what limited autonomy that we have growing up and how these uh, expectations of our parents shaped us and the behaviors that we have into our adulthood. And then Sonia shares with us how she manages to pull out the most excellent emotional performances from her actors and what the key is between having an Oscar-winning performance and a failure. Next, we go into Sonia's incredible story of writing a nine-page letter to President Ronald Reagan at just 17 years old and how he invited her to the Oval Office and how that meeting contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union and how this experience ultimately changed her life. Finally, we talk about the challenges of directing and filming her documentary, I Am You, in her homeland, Afghanistan, in the wake of a full-fledged war. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. So without further ado, this is me and Sonia Nasseri Cole. Sonia, hi, how are you? I'm well, and you? I'm doing well, thank you. Where are we right now? We are in Pier 59 Studios Yeah. in New York City. Isn't this an amazing city? It's my city. Is it? I really can't imagine living it anywhere else. Tell me about it. Why is that? I mean, home is home. Afghanistan, whenever I arrive, I just, no matter how horrible the situation is, you feel such a sense of belonging. Isn't that true? That earth is your earth. Yeah. Those people speak your language. Oh, yeah. Their jokes are funny. And the food is the food that you were raised with. So that's completely incomparable. Yeah. But when you're... Unfortunately, not living there. I've lived around the world, but I will never live anywhere else except New York because yeah. I find the energy of the city contagious. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's people from around the world, all kind of yeah. race, uh, languages. You, you want to practice your Italian, you can speak <laughs> Italian. You want German, German. You want French, French. You want Spanish, Spanish. Yeah. You want... Any kind of food in the world is here, and there is an honesty in this uh, state that I don't feel, for example, in California. People oh, tell you exactly how it is. Well, that's right, because you live uh, both here in New York City and in Beverly Hills, correct? Los Angeles? Is that right? Yeah, I yeah, lived yeah. in Los Angeles. I lived in uh, Arizona. I lived yeah. in San Francisco. I've, I've yeah. lived in Virginia. And there's something special about New York is what you're saying. Absolutely. You feel belonging because it's a lot of mixes here. Yeah. They say that uh, there are a few th interesting things I know about New York. Um, one, it's known as an alpha city. So what that means is you can get anything you want in the city 24-7. Right? right. It's an alpha city. I think there are only two other alpha cities in the world. Uh, the other two are London and Tokyo. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. And then also somebody once recently told me that um, the most diverse zip code in America is actually Queens. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So more languages, more people from all around the world in Queens than anywhere in the United States. I know States. there's a big population of Afghans there. So New York City, right? So you're a filmmaker. Let's just start with that. What is it that you love about storytelling? What is there not to love? It really gives meaning to my life. Mm. Um, as artists, you know, whether we write, direct, act, uh, paint, um, make movies, mm-hmm. we see the world from a different kind of light, a yeah. different kind of lens, which is creative. And creative people um, create stories in their minds. They are storytellers. Uh, filmmaker puts it in moving pictures. Mm. A photographer does it as a picture. An artist takes his easel and just with the draw of his brush. Mm-hmm. A singer mm-hmm. uh, opens the world to you through the emotion that is in their voice. Um, so storytelling is is my livelihood to bring something to light, to see a vision like right now, mm-hmm. looking at the sunset, I just think about something mm-hmm. uh, that uh, is a story. And my mind is a story. Like uh, I never, for example, when I'm stopped in a street light, mm-hmm. I just wait for, like everybody else I see in the car with me, they're just waiting like, oh, when is the car gonna go and sure. the light's gonna change? But I see people crossing, and I have a story about every single one of them. I can tell you if this man has five kids, if this man never been married, if this woman is sick, if this woman is sad, if this woman is in a uh, elated because she just got a, a new offer, or this woman is in love. I really can tell you by just waiting on the streetlight. That's interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that as you see people or as you th- see things in reality that kind of happen, in your mind, you're already creating the story about what's being experienced by that person or that thing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. As a filmmaker, mm-hmm. you're very sensitive to people, really sensitive. If I just not pay attention to somebody for a few seconds or I interrupt them or something, it stays with me the entire day I think about it. Oh, like, okay. how did they feel? And could have I done it differently? Mm-hmm. Maybe I should have less, listened a little longer. Yeah. It is ultra sensitivity. And I have worked with people that they don't even know they do it. Forget about thinking about wow. it later. So so this that's interesting. So this sense of uh, being really sensitive or this sense of empathy is what I'm hearing you say. Do you find that that makes you a better filmmaker? It's everything. Yeah. If you don't have that, you have no business making movies. Oh, that's interesting. I love that. So how did you, let's talk about that for a second. Now, the sense of empathy, you love, you just said earlier, you just love New York City, right? And so New York City is a place where people tell you directly how they feel about what's going on, right? And in many ways, New York City is the exact opposite of a place where people harbor or kind of cultivate empathy, right? I mean, it's the city of ambition. It's the city where people climb, people want to go, and they want to show the world who they are. So how is it somebody who's really, really sensitive, um, let's say, plays in a place like New York? How does it work? Does it work for you? Does it work against you? What is that like? Works for me. Yeah? 
implicitly, I mean, yeah. completely. Sensitivity, by this I mean, when I talk about filmmaking, for example, mm. I don't feel that I will ever want to make a film, even if you offer me, say, hey, Sonia, 10 million, yeah. do me a favor and make this movie. And the movie is about gambling and right. Las Vegas. I will tell you that, I, first of all, I have zero interest in telling a story like that. Second, you can study those kind of things. And yes, you can research, research, research and make a story. But why? I want to make films about something I know about. I don't think people should make films or tell stories or write books about something they don't know. You have to know your passion. Mm -hmm. You have to know what turns you on, mm -hmm. what excites you, what makes you cry, what makes you feel. If I feel all those things, I promise you, I'm going to make you feel it. Because you're able to, so that's amazing. So you're able to tap into it because you know exactly what it is. And then by knowing it, you're able to kind of show the world what it is that you see. That's what you're telling us. And I will touch you. Yeah. Because my heart is touched. So if I, if my heart is touched and I'm crying for something that really matters to me, yeah. I promise I'll make you cry. Just as I, a comedy makes you laugh. It's the same thing. That sense of empathy is really incredible. How did you cultivate that sense of empathy? Were you born with it? Is it something that you've kind of learned to tap into? Is it something that through your experiences by leaving a place like Afghanistan and living all over the world, you were able to kind of tap into it through experiences? Like how do you, let's talk about how you were able to kind of have that because, you know, not everybody has that and it takes, it takes some effort to kind of cultivate that. I believe um, with all my heart we're born like this. Ah, it's an intrinsic thing to yeah. us. I have uh, two sisters and I have a brother and my mom and dad told me that I was ultra sensitive. I, for example, as of today, I cannot see a horror movie because I will absolutely freak out. Oh I, I'm a filmmaker and yeah. I believe it's happening to me. Mm -hmm. That monster is coming at me and it's for real. I, I remember going with my son seeing um, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said to Christopher, I like, it looks scary. I don't want to go see it. And he goes, Mom, you have to come with me. And he's young and I'm young and we're going to see this movie. And all of a sudden, this Jurassic thing comes out. I screamed. The theater was totally full. I start running outside. And uh, Christopher is running behind me while all these people are in the theater, like 500 people. And he goes, Mommy, come back. It's just a movie. <laughs> But my That's father hilarious. told me that I saw um, a film that a little girl in Rome, when I was five years old, mm -hmm. I saw a film uh, that was about a little girl being taken away and from her family, or they don't even know what the movie was. Yeah. I don't remember it. Yeah. Um, a black and white movie, my father told me, and he said, you cried so much, and that night you wouldn't sleep, and you go, where can I find this girl? How, why don't we bring her to our house and take care of this baby girl, because it's not fair that she's alone, and I have more room in my bed. She can sleep with me, Daddy. And, and then I would cry over cartoons, and I was forbidden to watch television, because I couldn't sleep, and I would ask too many questions that 
will drive my parents crazy. And I had the same uh, thing about religion. Tell me about that. What does that mean? I was fascinated about God. Where is God and why, how can I see him? Mm-hmm. And you tell me to believe him, but mm-hmm. I have to see him. Right. Uh, and I kept that, and my father kept saying, you know, God is this, and he was educating me all the time. He had so much patience. Yeah. And uh, finally, after every day asking the same questions of him and getting deeper to my question, he says, okay, God is over there in the sky. And he says, you just have to believe in it, that it's over there. So then my questioning started, like, how many stairs does it take to touch the sky? What a great and question. So if we keep going and the whole world just by stairs and we go there and finally we touch it and then we can touch God. And this went on and on. There's not long enough stairs, blah, blah. And one day he just told me, he said, you just have to believe. It's faith. That's it. And that's where I learned about faith. He says, it just, you just have to believe. He said, the God who built us didn't give us the brain to see him. He says that we are not complete enough in that sense to see him the way you want to see him. You just have to believe in him. And then he would take me and show me a bird that was 30 colors in every feather of this bird. And he would say, look at these feathers. Look at these colors. Look at the peak and look at the forehead and look at at these 30 vibrant color in this bird. It was all designed. It's all so perfectly measured and designed. Mm-hmm. He said, look at the baby that is born complete. You have to believe that there is something you know, it's extraordinary really, out uh, there. That's really interesting. So I have the same sort of relationship with my father, too. Is uh, My dad says this sort of thing when we watch, funny, funny enough, when we watch the animal planet mm-hmm. on television. It's amazing. Right? So these creatures that are underneath the ocean. Because, you know, in Afghanistan, it's a landlocked country, and my parents don't know how to swim, right? So they don't even know what's in the water, but they get a glimpse of what's in the water by watching the animal planet. When they get to see the blue whales and the octopuses and this and that, my father says the same thing that your father told you. All of it just makes too much sense. It's Mm. too perfect. So um, that's really funny. Mm. I'd love to kind of talk to you about... um, Let's talk about your relationship with your father. So you're one of four kids. Yes. Okay, so are you I'm the, the mid- oldest. Oh my gosh, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> We're the boss. We really are. You know what comes with being the boss? A lot of responsibility. No kidding. Yeah. I wish my father was um, more open-minded Yeah. Uh, with me as he has been with my little sister. It was yeah. like with me was a nightmare of everything. Like I couldn't do anything. I never could spend a night with a girlfriend. He yeah. was terrified of everything. As my other sister and brother and my little sister came, like uh, everything was much lighter and easier. Well, that's what happens, right? So I think what happens, I'm not a parent, and we can talk about your, your, your role as a parent too, but what I've understood is that parents, with their first child, they're scared that things are going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. But by the fourth, by the third child, they realize like, you can't really control what happens. What's going to happen is going to happen, yeah, right? They let go. They let, they let go. Yeah. Right? But the first child, your your experience in life, my experience in life, we really have to fight for that sense of uh, personal identity, mm. that sense of creating our own path for ourselves. I mean, you're a creative person. and so Expectation is so high. It's so high, especially the cultures that we come from. Oh, my God. I mean, I, he wanted me to be straight A, yeah. and I was. 
there was one day, you know, in our country, there's the, the one to 10. I got a nine in algebra and I wanted to kill myself. Because I really thought it was the gonna, end of the world. You were going to disappoint your father. Well, no, it became about my perfection. My father looked at me and goes, Sonia, you can go to any university. It doesn't have to be all 10. Yeah. It's just like, it's okay if you get a nine somewhere. Like, but no, why? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Did you have, did you have that same sort of like um, expectation then with your son, Christopher? Did that sort of thing, I guess what I'm asking is, sometimes the way parents raise us, is the yeah. same way yeah, that I mean, we raise I'm our... identical. <laughs> <laughs> That's All I mean. the things that I really thought of, my God, they're so uh, strict and life is so difficult. It's like, oh my God. My son, I locked him up. I wouldn't let him go anywhere. Right. I mean, I never forget this day. He was 14 years old and it was his best friend's birthday. And the birthday started at 7 and they said it finishes at 11 uh, yeah, it was 11. Yeah. And Christopher had to be in bed every night at uh, 9.30. So he came to me and he goes, you know, mom, this is situation. So don't pick me up. Sure. And pick me up at 10.30. He was, he was trying to like be nice and give me a half an hour extra. And I said, 10.30, what are you talking about? I said, you have to be in bed by 9.30. Right. And at this point, he's t already tall, big boy. And I remember it was Los Angeles and I was in the kitchen. And he literally lifted me up and looked at me straight in the eye and said, come on, baby girl, just let me go once. <laughs> I'm like, put me down now. <laughs> That's I, amazing. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, I was like, no way. And uh, I went and picked him up at 930. Right. It was Norman Lear's son's birthday. It was Ben Lear. Right. And I remember um, Norman coming outside and saying to me, like, seriously? He says, you know, they haven't even cut the cake yet. Like, I said, sorry, but, uh, you know, I'm raising him like this. And he said to me, why everybody else, kids, can mm -hmm. stay late mm -hmm. and only I cannot? And I said, because that's the rules of our family. Exactly. You have your, everybody has their family rules. Our family rule is that you're going to bed at 9.30 and that's the way it is. And, you know, he didn't say a word. He accepted. He accepted it. From that, that point on, he never, like, bothered me with those kind of questions because with kids you don't say no all the time there's a, uh -huh. i find a culture that everybody this is no don't touch that no 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 right. no i didn't do that with my son when i said no it was a real no so let's talk about that so you said so non-negotiable no's non-negotiable right yeah. non-negotiable so what i'm hearing you say is that you picked your battles with your son in terms of things to say no to right yes. so not everything was going to be no so what's interesting is uh, the culture that you and I come from, the way in which parenting exists is very different from the way parenting exists here in the United States. And what do I mean? In Afghan culture, what ends up happening is kids aren't uh, catered to, right? So mm -hmm. kids, for example, whenever uh, Afghans deal with kids, kids only engage with their parents when their parents engage with them first. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So parents will give their kids the food that they are going to eat. Mm -hmm. Parents will give them the clothes that the parents yeah, want to give the clothes. It's a dictatorship. <laughs> it's a dictatorship. Choices. That's right. It's a, it's a dictatorship. Whatever you like, Penny. Yeah. What do you want to study? Right, right. Whatever you want to study. No, yeah. you're studying 17 subjects mandatory. Yeah, you're going to be a doctor and engineer. Uh, 
and and then yeah right, right, but right. you can't choose like oh i want to be an artist i'm studying art we that's don't have the, that choice that's the worst thing to say to an afghan parent that you want to be an artist oh my gosh you're going to be yeah. banished from the family so it's just like you said beautifully it's a dictatorship and mm-hmm. what's interesting is i find that cross-culturally when parents leave a place like Afghanistan where they're raised there and i would argue people are programmed mm-hmm. so the framework and the values that we have in many ways are programmed from a very young age. And once we have those, it's really hard to kind of shape and or change our beliefs. It's hard. So what happens is then parents come here, Mm -hmm. right, as immigrants to the United States, Mm -hmm. and they try to raise their kids the way they were raised, but in America. But in America, it's really interesting because other kids, Sonia, right, have choices because their parents give them choices. What kind of cereal would you like? What kind of clothes would you like? What kind of costume would you like for Halloween? Mm. But... It's not like that for us. Mm-mm. It's hard, right? <laughs> I like it the way we are. <laughs> uh, I yeah. really don't like the lot of choices. That's why all this um, teenage rebellions and everything that's going on in America, it has to do with the wrong type of parenting. It's true. I truly believe that it's 90% is the parent's fault. If, the, if, if I see a misbehaved child, I don't get upset with the child. I always say parenting, bad. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We come from a culture where that's really important, right? Very important. And the other thing that I really think about our culture that is extremely misunderstood worldwide Mm -hmm. is the women in our households are the bosses. Oh, my gosh. They tell the, the, the husband what to do, what not to do, including their business, what to wear. Every single Thing is told by them. The men is terrified of the woman, and it, it's misunderstood in America. They think, oh, these poor women are just men. Tell them what to do. Are you kidding me? Yeah. They act like the man is in charge, but the man knows and the woman knows who is in charge, which I find fascinating. And what's really interesting about it is there's this idea. So in my household, right? So what you said is ex- the perfect example to my home. So. My family was able to come to the United States and we were able to have a decent life. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that my mother was able to manage everything. She was able to make money, manage the household, raise her kids, uh, deal with her husband, my father, so that everything was working. Right? Mm -hmm. It's all because my mother was able to manage everything. Mm -hmm. Like my mother doesn't have a degree or an MBA, but I promise you that she is better at managing Things and businesses probably better than some MBAs. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, my mother, my grandmother was like that. Exactly. It's like that. And what's interesting about Afghan culture is that people perceive that men have all the dominance and all the control, but they have that when they step out of the home. And what we're saying is, and what you're saying is, the moment you go into the home, the woman runs the show. Yeah, it's very much that. That's, that's what happened in my family, too. Hmm. It's yeah. normal. It's normal. Let's talk about your love for how did you actually get into filmmaking, right? So you you you're really empathetic. What we're, we're what we're hearing you say is that you're really empathetic. You've always had this like need to kind of want to connect with people, mm-hmm. right? You've been deeply sensitive in terms of how people are and wanting to wanting to maybe learn more about them. But then how do we go from that Sonia to a Sonia that's now let's say making films or actually documenting? How did that happen? Well, I had a big passion for film to begin with okay. when I was a really young girl. Yeah. Um, I always uh, looked at films in the point of view of uh, directing. Really? Yeah. I, lo- I didn't see films like, oh, uh, let me just like listen to the story. Like I would always look like, uh, how is it looking? 
I would find holes. Like I'd, he said that, but I didn't see the mm-hmm. how this paid off at the end of the movie and why they shot it. This scene, which didn't move the story yeah. uh, from one place to another. Every scene has to make the story different. Like it has to change the story from one place to another, put a light into the story. But there are so many scenes in movies today that I see that I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? How interesting. Like uh, yeah. without these nine scenes, I would still get the movie exactly the way the movie was. So you just wasted my time. And gratuity in the movies, like, you know, just show a bar and some girls naked dancing. And that conversation could have been added to the scene before that. In the same scene. Understood. Understood. So, and those kind of things, I would always look at them like that was not necessary. This was not necessary. Uh, and then I would look at directorially in mm-hmm. uh, acting. And I really studied acting because you cannot direct unless you know about acting. Because you want to get actors to give you certain emotions and actors could tell you if you don't know anything about acting like oh what you're expecting me to do this emotion that you expect me to do it's impossible mm-hmm. and but if you really studied um acting and the technique of acting and uh, sense memory and uh, if you just take them to uh, a place that you go okay so this scene, just just like ask him, what is the scene about? And they'll mm-hmm. tell you the scene is that the mother comes and tells her daughter that she's very disappointed at, at right. her. Right, right. That's right. the scene about. Right. So I, you know, so she goes, she's disappointed, and I'm uh, that's too bad. And so I look at the mother, mm-hmm. and I say, so how do you feel about? It? It's like, yeah, that's not good. But the moment you go to some place, and like, did did anybody dis- disappointed you? And then goes, oh, by the way, my grandmother did this one time or whatever, they have a story. Interesting. And then you take them to that place, all of a sudden, as they're telling the story, I'm ready to shoot. It comes out. Just all of a sudden, the emotion you want, right? it comes alive. So if you don't know how to uh, talk with an actor and really get into their psyche, in the sense of push their buttons, because we all have buttons, I understand. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. We have bad buttons. We have good buttons. We have sad buttons. And a director, a job is to push the right button at the right time and know this, this, know their actors very well, know their vulnerabilities. Oh man! Yeah. I mean, to the point. For example, in I Am You, the young boy. It was very hard to get emotion out of him because he was. Um, some actors are very accessible and some actors are not. Now, is that based on experience that they're not, they're not accessible? How is that? How, do you, uh, how does that work? It, 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 training. Uh-huh. It's training. It's, uh, uh, it's humanity. Mm-hmm. Some human beings are sensitive, some are not. Uh-huh. And some are so terrified of going to that place that is not comfortable. That place of vulnerability. Vulnerability or sadness mm-hmm. or memories that just triggers a whole bunch of other things in their minds. So they feel like I'm going to act it through. But it's not genuine. If they don't actually go there, it's not genuine. You can do it in theater when people are sitting back here and they're over there screaming at you. Right. You can 
act like that. But camera is a very sensitive instrument. You don't have to say a word. I look at your eyes through my lens and I can tell you if you're lying to me or you're really feeling something. That's what makes a difference between a good movie and a bad movie. An Oscar winner performance or a a failure. I understand. It's just that. The, the whole thing is the same. The beauty is the same. That The story is the same. It's just those vulnerable moments that you get on camera. And when, when that happens, uh, which seldom happens, unfortunately, but when it happens, you just know at the moment I'm looking at the camera and that person is performing, I'm, I know this is print. I have I'm going to take five more takes, but I know exactly what I'm printing. And I always write down print, print, print. And this is, those are the ones after six months of editing at the end of the day, when I go to my book and I say, guess what? Everyone that I said print is the one that I chose. And it's based on this idea of being truly, truly um, in touch with the moment and with the scene and with that, with that emotion. That's what you're saying. To get your actor to feel to, uh, uh, so it's not an easy job because sometimes you torture them. I mean, I I really do. Really? If I can't get a performance out of you and you're just telling me, like, I really am feeling it. And I get them to a place that they become very sad mm. and they feel like uh, they're not giving their all. And normally I just, I tire them down. So I tire them down by rehearsing with them. I, I love rehearsals. Rehearsals is very important to me. Not during the shoot so much. The real work happens in rehearsals, what you're saying. All of it. All of it. As far as bringing those emotion and kicking them, like really just getting, getting it out of them. So I rehearse, for example, a five-minute scene the entire day over and over again if I have to. I literally would do that. And if it's not done, I'm saying, guess what's happening tomorrow? You're coming and starting the same thing again. If we have to do it all day, we're going to do it all day. You've got to give me what I need. Now, that's really interesting. Now, when you go through this process with an actor or actress where you're trying to get them to that place that is uh, of sheer emotion, do they end up uh, loving you for it afterwards or despising you? What is it like after? Because it's really hard for them to confront that space that they don't want to go to, yeah. right? So what is that like? What's the so relationship like? It doesn't look good in the beginning because they try to please you. Right. And so you ask them for the line. What's it like? You just said. And you say to me, what's it like? Mm-hmm. And I say, no, I, I, I don't buy it. Right. Say it again. I don't direct them. I just say, do it again. Uh-huh. And then they go, what is it like? And I said, no, do it again. So ask me a question. What is it like? 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 So that's called, um, I don't give them the line because that's giving the line. I hate that. Mm -hmm. Actors have to be free to say the line themselves. Understood. I never tell the, the, the actor, just say, what is the line? I'd never do that. I just say, this is not working. Try but I give them direction. Like, like if, if somebody says, I saw an angel, mm-hmm. you go, are you going to ask him, what's it like? How are you going to ask him? Right. You just simply ask them to talk about it and see what comes. Yeah. But you ask him like, 
whoa, you saw an angel today? Like, you, you, we human beings don't go like, what was it like? No. We have something underneath. Right, right. Underneath of, we are imagining an angel coming, talking, he's seeing and feeling, blah, blah. So our one line, what is it like, is going to come from all that stuff that we imagined prior to saying that. So I want to get him to that place. That's amazing. Now, how do you, I'm sure that's something that most people don't think about when they think about filmmaking, right? So this is something that's psychological, mm -hmm. that's coaching, that's guiding. So what is that like for you psychologically? Does it give you therapy when you coach and or guide actors and actresses this way? Like, how does it make you feel? I don't really like think of it like this. It's mm -hmm. like my job mm -hmm. to get the best out of them. And at the end of the day, I know when they see it, they're going to go, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me. Then it becomes to a point once they get it, the feeling is connecting the head, the mind, the sight, the heart, the body. Everything is all connected as one. Sure. Then they see themselves and say, oh my God. Can I have another take? No, I can even do better than that. Then you go, no, <laughs> I got it. Yeah. But they get so excited. They see, the, they see that their whole movement. Or like, what does this character wear? How does this character walk? Right, right. So it, you just have to know your character yeah, to be able to know what the walk is like, the talk is like, the way they sit, the way they hold the microphone like you're holding. Sure. That's a character. You know, it's a character choice. Right, right. So, and that character is you. So all the actors become the character. The character becomes the actor. It's the same thing. And that's why casting is important. You have an image in your mind and you see this, this girl talks like one, walks like one, eats like one, and hopefully will be able to perform like as that one that I have in mind. Interesting, yeah. yeah. My, my person. For example, I will tell an actor, like a, a creative hiding. So actors feel like if they are in a fight with you, they have to look at you straight in the eye and say, what is your question? No, I didn't do that. And I, people in real life don't do that. Right. In real life, if you're trying to say something and hiding it, you're just going to go like, I don't know what happened. You know, she laughed and I, I didn't see her after mm -hmm. that. Like the, the, that, that's all that happened, you know? So just like doing something physical with your body, with your hands, always is very interesting on camera than just being uh, present and delivering lines. Lines come from behavior. Oh, always yeah. have to have behavior body language all yeah yeah behavior behavior we behave all the time like i'm sitting with you i'm not on tv or anything but you see me i, I change the microphone i push this i i come close i go back i right. you, you know I, I i i play with this zipper of my boots we we do things right. in life we do things and that's what makes a film alive that's amazing so let me ask you sonia that's really great um in terms of actors and actresses, right, that you mm -hmm. really, really admire. So as a filmmaker, right, so so tell us uh, the films maybe or the actresses and actors that you really, really think did a great job in a specific role, right? Like who is somebody um, that you thought to yourself, man, in this role, Dustin Hoffman was amazing, right? And Rain Man, he was fantastic, right? Or Edward Norton in Primal Fear was just remarkable. Mm -hmm. Who is that person for you? 
first time I really felt like incredibly connected mm -hmm. to an ensemble group in a film that I thought that changed me as far as camera and acting and casting. Mm -hmm. um, I was really, really young. I read a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And the book was incredible. Normally when they make a movie, it's always disappointing. But when I saw Daniel Day-Lewis and Juliette Binoche relationship, then the relationship between the three, yeah. the dynamics of that. Uh, a film works when everybody's working together. Teamwork, yeah. When an actor comes in as a big star, and an actor is as good as the, co uh, the, the person they are acting with. Right. If the person you're acting with can bring you to the gutter and swallow you, right. and your, all your talent will be disappearing, or it can enlighten you and lift you up even if you're a mediocre actor because your opposite is so powerful and incredible, you rise to the level. Sure. So to me, not to get specific, specific about who I like and who I don't like, when I see that kind of synergy happening, that's when magic happens in cinema. And, yeah. um, and the first time you experienced that was with this film. Yeah. How amazing. And bearable lightness of being. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Still one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And I just said, ugh, now he lifts her, she lifts him. The other one is looking like I am going to be just as good or maybe better yeah. than both of you together. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's a beautiful, sexy competition of they are becoming the characters so good because if you want to give a great performance, you have to know the ins and outs of who you are playing. Mm -hmm. The reason people want to become actors is they don't, they are, they are nothing. They're really a clean canvas. Most of amazing actors, if you really want to know, you talk with them, they're extremely boring people. They have nothing to say. Nothing exciting, no up and downs in their conversation, no emotionally charged about things. They are like a very clean canvas. And they put a character on, they become somebody. Then they are alive. Um, wow. I could say this to you about Robert De Niro. Wow. You know, he is a very non-conversational non kind of person, very flatlined in, as, as a person majority right. of time. He doesn't give you uh, anything. But when he acts, he is like... He can be anything he wants because he really, really becomes somebody else. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Brando, yeah. same. Well, Brando, yeah. I mean, if you really look at the most iconic uh, actors, they are all very simple people. Mm -hmm. Christopher Walken, in person, he is one of the quietest, non-conversational very flatline, lovely person. So what I'm hearing you say is like the best, uh, the most prominent actors and actresses that you've experienced uh, tend to find this source of freedom when they're able to take on a character because they're able to flourish like a flower. Yeah, because they become somebody else. Wow. It's an opportunity in life. The reason 
real actors want to be actors is because they want to be somebody else. They are experiencing everything of somebody else. That's fascinating. Like when you see Charlize Theron in Monster, she is the monster. She's not playing monster. She sleeps with the monster. She thinks about the monster. She gets her nightmares, her feelings, her ups, her downs. She feels all of the monster. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So um, Meryl Streep is the number one person. I mean, I know she's, everybody says she's so high, heavily rated. Why? Because she can become a Polish immigrant. She can become a um, Margaret Thatcher. She can become anybody. But she is that person. She is, breeds that person for the six months, a year that she prepares and shoots and gets ready for the character. Um, so do you find that characters, do you find that actors and actresses tend to um, go through like a mental battle to prepare for that character? Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy. No. Sometimes you have to go to places like you really don't want to go. The, the actor's studio, you know, teaching is like, go there. Really go there. I studied with a Greek actor, uh, acting teacher that was extremely famous. We lost him about eight, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Melton Katsalas. Mm-hmm. And he worked with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. He directed them and butterflies the play and it was really 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 amazing greek coach and i was in that class for about 11 years he made me act also which i really didn't want but i learned a lot that i thank god for him for teaching me that um but you would see very powerful people in that class huge stars everybody that was anybody was there and he would just had this incredible ability to humiliate every single human being that would got on the stage. He would break you down. He will tell you, do the song and dance, whether you're directing, you're acting, it didn't matter to him. Mm -hmm. Stand up, no music, no nothing, just dance, but don't dance like you know how to dance. Just move, right? move like totally out of any kind of uh, format and made us like, and then he would say, very, very tough guy, yeah. very tough guy. So his magic was breaking you down, break you down to the point to, to actually that is getting naked, totally naked. Mm-hmm. So when you are emotionally naked, mm-hmm. then he goes, now go play this part. Or he would tell me, go direct him and tell him to do the scene. Now. Because they become the clean canvas. Yes. No, because you, we, uh, it's very hard to act because there is vulnerability we have as human beings. You don't want to watch me cry, ugly cry. When I ask you to cry ugly, who wants to do that? There is a beautiful cry, a tear coming very nicely, but an ugly cry that spit is coming out of your mouth and tears are coming and you're sweating. Very few people want to do that. But yep. when you ask them to do that, you do that only if you're broken down. To a point that you go, I've done that before. The class killed me. It did me a thousand times. Now, when it comes to scene and action, you go to that place and everything comes off. And you know what's really interesting? What you're saying is, um, I think there's an intrinsic need for human beings to want to be vulnerable to the point where they show the world 
their ugliest self. I think there's a need for human beings to do that because what's interesting is I personally believe that when you can see somebody in their most ugliest form, I think that's actually quite beautiful. I think it's really beautiful in the sense that you actually get to see for that, that person for who they are. Good luck with that. <laughs> it's hard, right? And so what I'm hearing you say is like the directors are trying to get to the, that person, But to that space. But that's what the actors pretend to do for you. Yeah. And that's our job to get it out of them. Right, right, But right. in real life, very few people will show you that. You could right. be in a relationship with somebody for 10 years and you'll never see that side of them because it's vulnerable. Yeah. Very few people are willing to do that. Yeah. I, um, I, I did a TEDx talk in 2007, Sonia, about, about this topic. I called it, uh, it was entitled uh, Change in Vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's talking about these moments where you really don't know somebody until you know, you actually don't know yourself until you're actually vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And you show the world who Sonia is. You well, show the, the world. Well, the other night we were talking about this at Harvard. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, just getting to know yourself is such a huge world out there. Yeah. Your mind. I mean, we are using 10% of our brain. That's what they say. Supposedly, yeah? Yeah. So imagine that 90% if you tap into it. I am fascinated with that world that is within me and within you and yeah. the inside of us and that inner journey. I mean, it's incredible journey. I'm, I'm hoping that I am like uh, using 12% <laughs> and, and my goal is to use 15, you know, yeah. but... Um, This idea of finding yourself is really difficult. It's Knowing very yourself. difficult. It's very difficult because uh, a lot of us don't want to know. Keep that in mind. Sometimes finding out those things about yourself is not fun. You know, what's interesting is somebody once said that if you aren't uh, facing your demons, your demons are in the basement lifting weights. They're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so those demons inside of us It's better that we face them sooner rather than later because one day they may come to overpower us. Right? But of course, But that's of the course. challenge of life. That's the challenge of life. And yeah. that's the, uh, the, to look at life in a high level of consciousness. Mm. Because a lot of people are, are looking at everything from the gutter. But if you really start treating human beings from a higher level of consciousness and you don't think about, but you said this and he said that, and then you said this, and these kind of things, for example, it's like somebody's biting my skin off. Yeah. I am so not interested in that kind of, you said, he said, she said, at all in my life. Never been, never will be. I always look at, things in such higher level it's like why somebody does that and just to forgive and forget no. because nobody for example mm -hmm. you're crossing the street and a man comes and slap you in the face okay you never seen him you don't know him obviously he doesn't know you sure what do you do Um, depending on how I feel, I probably would hit him back, right? That's the normal thing to do. 99% of the people will do that. Sure. Um, this question was asked of me right. and I, I was really young when this question was asked of me and I said, um, I'll, I'll run and hug him and said, hug him. I said, yes, because he is in pain. Mm. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about him. It's about 
him, what people say and do is reflection of themselves. It has nothing to do with you. The moment we acknowledge that, the world becomes a very different world to, to, to us. So that's a transformational mind shift. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to look at the uh, world because if you logically think about it, there is something so painful in his heart. Yeah. All he needs is love, not another punch. He needs somebody to hold him and say, what can I do? Are you okay? Talk to me about whatever is hurting you right now. Oh my gosh, that's interesting. So this is a really, this is probably a really great point to kind of transition into your 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 world of social activism, right? So this idea of of giving back, this idea of of wanting to make people's lives better, right? So uh, you have an incredible story of writing a nine page letter to Ronald Reagan, right? And he actually read it. Can you tell us how that happened? How you were inspired to write it? Like what exactly was going on? Okay, so this is a funny story. It becomes funny. <laughs> and I came to America. I was 15 years old, and I was working at the United Nations, and I wrote a letter to the President Reagan because mm -hmm. I had a tiny little apartment in Union, um, United Nations Square, whatever it's called, that area. Sure. And it was, the whole apartment was the size of this table. And um, not that my father was very rich, but I was daughter of a diplomat. We had lived in Europe and traveled around the world. And we had a very nice lifestyle. And uh, I've never seen that kind of life that I was doing by in, in this world like that. Yeah. And the table, you know, the table, my apartment was about like this, it, a sink and a bathroom and a little black and white TV with two antenna and a bed that was the chair and a bed at the same time. And I was, um, my TV wasn't working unless I was holding the antennas uh, together. Yeah. Uh, and it, it had to be a certain area of holding. To get the connection. To get the connection. And I was watching a documentary that Dan Rather did on CBS about Afghanistan. Oh, my gosh. I know the documentary. You know the doc? Yes, I do. In this documentary, there is a, a moment that there is a woman, an Afghan woman, barefoot in the snow, carrying two kids, and another kid is holding to her skirt. And she's walking barefoot on the snow, and the kids have no shoes either and when I saw that every hair in my body just stood up and I got I started not crying but I got my heart started beating and I got really emotional and I said I have to do something about this so I'm sitting and I'm shaking and the TV went back to that fuzzy look yeah, yeah. and I just said, who's, who can, I need to do something, what can I do? I said, who's the most powerful person in the world? The President of the United States. Of course. Oh, that's President Reagan. Right. So I just took a pad and I start writing from my heart that what's happening in my country, the essence of it is like this, what's happening to my country is genocide. We can't sit in the, here in the West and pretend it's not happening because when human rights is violated anywhere, it's violated everywhere, you're the president of the United States, you must do something, you sure. have to call me, sure. we have to talk about this. 
Now, this was in the wake of the Afghan-Soviet war, right? Yeah. Okay. During okay. the Soviet invasion. Okay. Yeah. So I came in 1979. So yeah, it's about a few, couple of years. And I write this letter and I start crying in the letter. And uh, my pen was one of those ones that you put the ink on it. Sure. So it bled a little bit. Sure. I folded them. I mailed it. Oh, and I wrote a phone number. I said, call me immediately when you get this. Now, when you sent it, did you actually think the president was going to read it? 1,000%. You had faith in that? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Like, without a doubt. That's fascinating. Why? That's a good question. I don't know. But you felt it. Like, this is going to be read by President Reagan. It's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Because I believe that America is the only country that the essence of democracy is really practiced. And anybody can reach out and be who they are. And there are people who are going to listen to you. I really believe that. How powerful was that experience? You writing the letter, it getting to the desk of President Reagan, him opening it, him reading it, and then did he call you? This is what happened. So I went the next day uh, to the office, and there was a, a receptionist uh, uh, at the UN that was in charge of huge departments. Sure. I don't even know what where I was sure. so long ago, so young. And this woman um, from Jamaica, I went to her and I said, listen, um, I read a letter to President Reagan. Sure. He's going to call me in the next couple of days. Sure. I didn't have a desk. I didn't have a phone. I had nothing. I'm filing, translating, making coffees, whatever they needed, I was doing it. Sure. And I said, you know, you have to find me, you have to page me. And she looked at me, she knew my story, that I have no family, and I was very sad. And she goes, you're very lonely, yeah, honey, it's going to be okay. All this will pass. You're going to see your family again. And I said, no, I'm fine. She thought I've lost my mind. I'm like, really? So her uh, response to me was, Empathetic, like, yeah, oh, now she's writing letters to presidents. <laughs> Who does she think she is? Yeah. No, not only that, it's like she's lost it. Oh, my she's God. She's sad. Oh, okay. And I said, no, seriously. And she goes, okay, okay, you, you got it. And literally three days later, it's the end of the day of the third day, the phone rings. No, I hear my, I've never been paged before. So it says, Sonia Nasri, pick up the phone. And I'm like, I'm under a table filing. I hit my head so hard. I pick up the phone and it says, this is Sonia. I'm like, yeah. It says, well, um, this is chief of staff of President Reagan. He read your letter. He was really touched. He was wondering if you were available Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock to meet him at the White House. And I said, Yes. <laughs> I was ready to hang up the phone. He goes like, okay, can you hold on a second? <laughs> I need your fax number. So I gave him the fax number. The fax number, of and course. It, he says, we, we need to send you instruction. And I said, okay. And um, they sent me a fax. So I went to my little boss, which, you know, I think he was 25. And then there had, I had another boss that was about 70 or something. Sure. So my little boss, I told him, I said, I have to take Tuesday off. And he goes, why are you telling me? Because I've never taken a day off in my life. I've been there a long time, yeah. a year, almost a year, 11 months. And he says, talk with the big boss. So I went to the big boss and I told him the story. I said, I have to go. I'm so sorry. I have to take Tuesday off and I cannot come to work because I'm meeting with the president. Right <laughs> oh, my God. So he looked at me and he goes, Sonia. 
we were wondering when you're going to take a day off. He says, you don't have to lie like this. Just say, I need a day off. And they I thought said, you were lying. But I'm not lying. I'm meeting with the president. He goes, okay. Okay, it's okay. It'll be fine. Yeah. And so I leave. They thought you were lying. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, who could? I, who would have thought? Is, yeah. Right. Somebody come to you, I think you would say too. Yes. And um, I go to the White House. And I stand in line, and there is like so many important people at that time. Sam Donaldson. Do you remember uh, the the anchor of CBS, Peter Jennings? Peter Jennings. And I don't know what kind of news was breaking, but they all had meetings with the president. And then it's me in the middle, and somebody that is in charge of the appointments comes, kind of a chief of staff person, and he says to me, come on, it's your turn. Uh And I get up, and he looks at me straight in the eyes, and he said, okay, I have to tell you something. Listen very carefully. You have maximum four and a half minutes. So make it snappy. He went like that. And I said, okay. Like, oh, I'm already so scared and shaking. I'm like, oh, my God. The Oval Office doors open. The president is behind the desk. Yeah. I see him. I see him like a light around him. Like he's like an angel to me. I swear. He had a beautiful energy, this man. And he just got closer. And he goes, where is your mom? And I said, She's in Afghanistan. And he goes, who wrote the letter? I said, I wrote the letter. And he said, oh, okay then. He got up and he goes, let's sit on the sofa. Because I was so little and he was so big and the disc was so big. Right. And so we sat on the sofa and he said, would you like some tea? And I immediately went to my watch and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time. And he said, where are you going? He, you told him that you I don't said, have I'm so time. sorry, I don't have time. He says, where are you going? He was such a beautiful, innocent man that he really thought I had more important appointment. Oh, my gosh. And I said, so funny. I said, oh, no. I said, there's this man outside. He told me I have four and a half minutes. And he goes, oh, don't worry about him. Would you like some tea? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he calls him and he says, can you bring her some tea? He yeah. looked at me like he wanted to cut my throat. Oh, my. You overpowered like, him. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what did I just tell you? So I get the tea. We start talking. And the president said, everything you said in your letter, I completely believe in. And yes. We can do something about it. But he said, I cannot do anything about it. But you can. So I'm like totally in an enigma. I am just, I, I just became silent. I said, I said, I'm just a girl as a political asylum. I'm a ref- refugee. Right. And I'm all alone here. What can I do? Right. And he looked at me and he said, one person can change the world. You want to be that person? And I said, yes. And he goes, okay, I'll tell you what you can do. He said, Afghanistan is very successful in the ground. They're destroying Soviet Union. He says, your country is fighting, and they're very successful. You're brave people. He says, where they're failing is 
Soviet Union using these planes to bomb uh, the villages and the people, and they're in the shape of Coca-Cola bottles and dolls that have enough explosions that a child picks it up, they blow their arm, mm. and the whole strategy behind it was mm. for the father to take their child out of Afghanistan. To a the, clinic or to, hospital. To a hospital something. to take care, so that will break down the freedom fighters. Oh, I understand. And he said, what, uh, and he showed me pictures of these dolls and Coca-Cola bottles. And, and the toys that they throw on, on people. Right. And he said, but Afghanistan needs a stinger missile. I said, what is that? And he said, it's a missile that is made of a metal. And you shoot it. You Even you can do it. He said, you just put in the direction of a plane. Right. It's magnet. Right. It catches it and blows it. Right. And I said, but that's fantastic. Why yeah. don't you buy some and send it there? Right, right, right. And he goes, well, the Senate is not approving it. So he said, bring some children from Afghanistan. Go testify in front of the Senate. I'll be 100% behind you. And we're going to get the Stinger missile approved. And once that's done, it's the end of the Soviet Union. You had that conversation yeah. with President Reagan. Yeah. Oh, at the meantime, yeah, the tea arrived, <laughs> and he asked me if I wanted some cookies. And again, I looked at my watch, and he goes, don't worry about the time. And I had tea and cookies. And then... That's fascinating. We were there 12 and a half minutes, and then I went and did what he told me, and we testified, brought a bunch of kids. We testified in front of the Senate. Right. We got the Stinger missile approved for Afghanistan. Right after that was the end of the Soviet Union. Right after that, the Berlin Wall came down. Right, right, right. It was a chain that broke everything. Years go by. Uh, well, uh, President Reagan um, and Nancy Reagan became friends. Yeah. I did an event honoring President Reagan, and he came and sat right next to me. Oh and he was the most incredible, funny conversation, inspiring such an, I mean, to have a dinner with the President of the United States sitting next to you, it was like a, a dream. And so um, uh, we uh, gave him the Freedom Award from Afghanistan World Foundation, uh, which I began right, thanks right. to his support. Right, right. And uh, we still have an incredible board with Dr. Kissinger and um, a lot of celebrities and sure. Diane Feinstein has been incredible support. John McCain, a lot of Senator John Kyle, a lot of senators and congressmen, to the point of showing my first documentary at the Senate and the, and having fifty three senators show up was am amazing. And because of that documentary, the aid for humanitarian for Afghanistan went. I think they they gave a billion dollar with humanitarian aids amazing. to Afghanistan and uh, policies uh, changed for Afghanistan big time um, so the president and I stayed in touch and uh, one day uh, after he's not president sure. I go to his office in Century City yeah. and I just wanted to see him and give him a hug and yeah. And I looked at him and I said, President Reagan, do you know what you've done in this world? I said, because of you, you brought an end to the Soviet Union. I said, because of you, Berlin Wall came down. Right. And you know what this man said? He looked at me and goes, you did it. This is the kind of person he was. Wow. 
And he said, in life what you need is people like-minded to love you and support you. If you believe in, in something noble, you are not alone making it. There is always people behind you that will join you. And he said, there are so few chiefs and so many Indians. Give them something. They follow you and they'll help you. And together we change the world. I can destroy myself and have a thousand deaths by making movies in these war zones. Mm -hmm. It will mean nothing if I don't have the crew that I have that helps and support me. The audience that push me forward the people that work with me, that believe in me, that believe in my cause, that want to make it, it's all that. I learned all that from what he told me. So that, that conversation with President Reagan after the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the evacuation of all the Soviets and communism from Afghanistan, that conversation that you had with him is the thing that kind of sets you on this path of telling stories of changing the world, starting foundations, this was the conversation. Yeah. That's amazing. It's funny you're talking about it. They get emotional because uh, I don't believe in heroes and um, people that you look up to and want to be like. I, I don't. Right. I, I think everybody is a hero right. just to make it through life. It's true. So I don't have big heroes or want to be like... But I do believe in people who inspire us. He was the biggest inspiration of my life. He was a man that, um, uh, politics aside and all that, yeah, yeah. his being, his energy, his energy, his soul was uh, as pure as a child's soul. Right, right. And he truly believed in humanity and he truly believed in goodness. And when he said, America, the city, the shining city up on the hill. He means meant that with yeah. every essence of him. Yeah. He believed in America. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So that experience, that conversation, that influence that this inspirational person, the President of the United States, had on you. And you were part of this too. It's, I mean, you're telling us that you were part of this the 1980s where the United States was getting involved. A vehicle. Yeah, right? A vehicle. A vehicle, right? So you're part of this experience. And so I think this is a great little segue to understand where Afghanistan was, right? So where Afghanistan was, the defeat of the Soviet Union, your role in that, Reagan's role in that, this happens. And now let's talk about where Afghanistan is today, right? Because now the country is dealing with, what, 40 years of war now, right? So 2019, the war starts, the Soviet invasion happens in 1979. Correct. Correct. Now it's 2019, Sonia. And now you've made a film about the realities on the ground. I mean, I saw it with you the other day at the Harvard Business School Club of New York. Uh, it is fantastic. It made me, um, it made me really emotional. Uh, and I think it makes anybody who has, um, who has a heart really emotional. Um, can you tell us about your film, I Am You? Let's talk about that. I think that's a really great place to kind of to go right now. What's the reality in the ground in Afghanistan right now? What do you see? What does this film tell the world? So to go back to mm. your exact question, mm. it's been 40 years of war. Yeah. And what it was, we had a country that was highly sophisticated, educated, fashionable, 
I mean, even today, the way an Afghan speaks with you, you feel like you're reading a Shakespeare book. The respect of the communication, they never say you. It's like we don't even have an equivalent word for that. Shema. Yeah. Shema. That's the form for those that are listening, that's the formal way of saying you, right? Such a formal way of communication, right? With such high level of respect. The way intellectuals talk with each other is like, my God, I'm reading Shakespeare, literally. Yeah. And gratitude and right. not interrupting and actually listening and asking about you, but really asking, how are you? How are you? They really mean that. How's your mother? How's your father? How's your brother? How's your health? How's your health? How's your mind? Are you happy? I mean, they really, it's a very, it's not like, hello, how are you? Good, fine. Never like that. Seriously, they want to know how you are. I mean, you're Afghan. We had theaters with gorgeous velvet seats of 700 people sitting, a screen that was beats any screen duplex in America today. We had an ancient history uh, that um, was way before America even knew what um, women's rights were. Women were free then during Amman Khan, our king. Yeah. Women had rights for 400 years ago. Now everything went back, backward. We, we literally went 300 years backward. Like, it's insane. And in this backwardness, that's when we became famous to the world. Ah, yeah. Uh, uh, a driver was driving me to Rome Film Festival in November, was it? Sure. And he asked me, he says, uh, by the way, you're picking me up, dropping me off. And I said, by the way, uh, what are you here for? I said, oh, I made a movie called I Am You. It's closing night of Rome Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, he said, where did you shoot it? I said, Afghanistan. He goes, oh, my God, my wife and I went there for our honeymoon. It was our favorite place in the world. So Afghanistan, like Marrakesh, it was a, a honeymoon destination. Oh, yeah. It was such a sexy place to go, exotic place to go. So now, when I arrive in Kabul, First of all, I don't recognize anything. Anything. With all the walls and the security. No, but everything is blown of- up. Ministry yeah. of Foreign Affairs had my father worked. It was all these marble white stairs that you would climb and climb and climb and then finally arrive this beautiful office. Half of the stairs blown up. The other half is broken. There used to be tons of flowers, geraniums everywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... Incredible. I, I can't recognize anything, including my family home. And mm. they say, this is it. And I'm like, where, how, how did it got here? Right. It's just really sad. And the, the suppression against women mm. is heartbreaking more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the fact that all men and women, they're saying, you know, women's rights, women rights continuously. But, I in Afghanistan, all rights are violated. Imagine being married to a woman that is a doctor in a university, mm-hmm. a teacher in university, a doctor that actually does surgery, and very powerful. She is a professor of medicine, teaching medicine, medical school. Half of her time, she 
does these major neurosurgeries in Afghanistan, and all of a sudden she's told, you stay home. And not only you stay home, but your daughter cannot go to school either. And then the husband, who probably is a clerk in uh, Minister of Interior, Mm -hmm. doesn't have a big job, but it was her money and his money together that could have a nice lifestyle in Afghanistan. Now that is all cut off. He cannot see the face of a woman ever again. He cannot listen to music. He has, has to take, he can't even come home and his wife has food for him because she's not allowed to go to the store and buy food to cook for him. How is he doing? I mean, I would not be, the, I don't want to be that man that walk in with a woman sitting at home, pissed off the level that this woman would be. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard for everybody to survive in this kind of situation in Afghanistan is disaster. And what what's interesting about, so going back, I went back for three years, and what's interesting about being in a place like Afghanistan right now is that the level of insecurity causes people to actually act out in this way where they can't count on tomorrow. So they're highly, highly sensitive to insecurity, right? So they're super protective, just really, really, really scared of what could potentially happen to them, right? So the 40 years of war led to this place where people are just hypersensitive to what the negative a- the negative aspects of what other people can do to them. Because there's no police force that's going to take care of them. There's no social services. There's no rule of law. In many ways, it's highly chaotic. So people have to act in such a way where they're very defensive. They're very defensive. It's really interesting you're saying this because I saw another side of that. Tell me about it, yeah. You're, what, all you're saying is very true. Hmm. But my experience of that was that life and death meant nothing to them. I swear to you. It was normalized. Completely. A bomb is dropping while I'm shooting. They blew up Minister of Interior. We feel the dust and the dirt coming to where we're shooting. Hmm. We hear it. Hmm. Everything moves like, like the entire set moves. And I'm looking... At my Americans, which are ready to hightail it, everybody has their backpacks on, like, we're done with this movie. And I see the Afghan crew. They are just fixing the set again, putting the tea spilled, they're putting the tea back on. I'm like, what are you guys doing? We don't, camera, cameraman just left. And he looks at me like, why did he leave? And I'm like, bomb just dropped, you know? And he goes... Don't worry about it. Let's just keep our work job going. It didn't phase them at all. Zero. Interesting. Zero. Yeah. In the movie Black Tulip, they uh, there is, was a woman uh, that I wanted to cast for the movie that I met two year, a year and a half before. This woman had done a movie anti-Taliban, and um, she told she was an actress. She was in Kabul for a tea commercial. Sure. And I looked at her, and she was sitting in the, this Kabul uh, hotel, uh, an intercontinental hotel at the restaurant, and she was looking so beautiful and open-toe shoes and red scarf, black suit, really beautiful girl. And I said, what are you doing here? She was waiting alone. I was waiting for somebody. She was waiting. And she said, I'm an actress. Yeah. I'm here for a tea commercial. And I said, oh, I said, you know, I'm planning to do a movie I would love to have you in the movie sure uh, uh, 
But I said, there's a problem. The movie's anti-Taliban. She goes, don't worry about it. I already shot a movie anti-Taliban. I said, fantastic. This girl, long story short, the Taliban chopped her feet off. I didn't know this because she wouldn't respond to my calls. Finally, when I call her from Kabul on my Afghan phone, she responds to my phone call after three and a half months of me trying to find her. And she told me that this is what happened. And she said, of course, I cannot be in your film. But she would very emotional voice says to me, you go make this movie. You do it for me. Don't let them stop you. And I couldn't, with a conscious mind, Mm. cast another person to play this part, another woman. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to close production, come back to America, try to find an American that could play the part or anybody outside of Afghanistan so I can bring him back with me. Mm-hmm. And we were already two months pre-production in Afghanistan, and my cinematographer, my actors they, that came with me, they were like, you know about acting, just jump in and do this, because it's going to be really hard to get back. They already knew about us and what we're doing and all right. that. Right, you had momentum. Momentum was happening, the crew was complete. And I jumped in, and I wanted to make my hair black. And I didn't know what to do, where to go, because I won't. At first, I cut the part in half because I'm directing, producing, and I cannot be acting. And nobody is there to tell me, how am I doing? You know, because I can't go back in front of the camera, back of the camera, try to do this thing. Anyways, in life, you assume the position sometimes. Yeah. But I walked in this um, little tiny hair salon. And there was this very good-looking gay man dressed with a Dolce Gabbana T-shirt that had funny one, fake one, and black pants and boots and some jewels around him, his neck. And he came to me and he said, I said, can you color my hair? Yeah. Uh, And he goes, yes, I have L'Oreal. I said, you have L'Oreal? I have L'Oreal. So I said, just make it black. And he said, okay. So he does that. The place has a light coming through it. It's kind of tiny place, very cold, no no heater. It's end of November in Afghanistan. And uh, he washes my hair. I say, I'm in the bowl. The water is freezing cold. I said, oh, the water is cold. And he goes, yeah, we don't have hot water. So, you know, the electricity keeps going on and off as we are the light coming in and out. A big mm-hmm. American tank mm-hmm. came and stopped in front of the oh my gosh. place. And the place went pitch black. Yeah. Black. And now he's lighting candles in order for me to see him and him to see me. It like literally. On. The show must go the on. The show must go on. But I told him, I said, oh my God, this tank. I said, so upsetting. And he goes, that's fine. Yeah. He goes, look at me, I'm alive. Yeah. And he had a radio, battery-operated radio, yeah. playing Afghan song. Amazing. And he goes, the music is playing. He goes, life is beautiful. Tomorrow I will not be alive. But today we're here. But he says, today I'm alive and I'm living every moment of it. What a wonderful message. But you just looked at that and you go, what a life he has. He's gay in the middle of Taliban. He is this beautiful human being with an amazing 
soul that any minute he could die. He lives in war zone and he he said, I have a bride coming today. I'm very excited. going to get married, yeah. Yeah, he says, a bride is getting married. She's coming here today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these people, what's interesting is human beings have to cope with their environments, right? They have to they have to be able to deal with what's going on, and they have to do it in such a way that's going to give them purpose. Mm-hmm. His purpose in that moment, what I'm hearing you say, is to make you look beautiful, to make that bride look beautiful. Like, the show has to go on. And that was his contribution to the moment. I was wondering why the music is so extremely loud. Mm. He just wanted to be out of his mind. It was it was taking him away. Because I had to scream when to talk to him for him to hear how I won the color. Okay. Okay. Um, Sonia, so um, when is your film going to be released? I Am You. I just finished the film. The first thing I did, I submitted to the Golden Globe this Amazing. year. Congratulations. Thank you And so it got nominated, much. correct? Yes, we were so excited about this uh, film, and God willing, we will know very soon. Great. And um, uh, I haven't looked for distribution, tell you the truth. Not a problem. That comes later. Yeah. I want to do the festival run. Great. To go to Berlin, to go to Venice, to go to Cannes. All the festivals that are up and coming um, and uh, get the message across for me is to let the world know from the point of view of refugees, why somebody becomes a refugee, what they go through in the process of that, and what happens to them when they do arrive. And... uh, why they matter, and um, to put a light in this corner of the universe that is not acknowledged properly yeah. by anybody. Yeah. And uh, as uh, Federico, which we are sitting actually in his office, Federico Pinatelli said to me at the Rome Film Festival, which was so profound, he says, they are the casualty of religious righteousness and political uh, corruption. They're caught in the middle. That's what refugees are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw the film uh, uh, with you on uh, on Monday, and um, I think it was an incredible uh, way to capture exactly what people are going through. They're caught in the middle. They don't know what is going to happen tomorrow and they have a chance to leave. Many ways they have to leave because otherwise their lives are in danger and the struggle in which they go through to have the life that we are given here in the West is, um, it's really captivating. So for, for everybody that's listening, please go out and see it when it comes out. Uh, Sonia's done a great job of, of telling that story. And your, your film is based on a true story, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's a true story. It's a very, uh, it's, a, it's a story like we've seen on the news every single day. We see a truck getting stopped with 200 people, 100 people dead, you know, half of them children. We see these blowed up boats that sinks in 
yeah. tons of people die in that process and uh, they're just voiceless and now we are numb to that you know we've only seen it from the point of view of the news they just we don't see the humanity we just see these moving bodies dying yeah, yeah. but we don't see who they are this film shows you that they have culture they have family i show it from the point of view intellectuals a refugee could be you, could be me, could be any day, could happen to us. And that's why you chose the name I Am You. I Am You. That's wonderful. Sonia, I think this is a great place to uh, wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your life with us. And thank you so much for making this film. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to you. I wish you the best of luck with all your future endeavors. And you're a really uh, very open and very... Uh, easy to talk to interviewer. I appreciate you. Thank you, Sonia. Appreciate you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com.